The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Hi, I'm Kelly McMillan, and I'm your host. Uh, For the next hour, we're going to be talking about everything as it relates to guns, but specifically today, we've got a a little more focus uh, time here. Um, Normally, we have guests on that will talk about uh, their unique experiences within the firearms industry and shooting sports, and today, we specifically have a guy to talk about conservation and how it relates to the shooting sports and uh, so much more. I'm really excited to have him here. Um, I'm also joined today by my co-host, Zev Nadler. Hello, welcome. And uh, very excited to introduce Larry Voiles, the director of the Arizona Game and Fish. So I want to start this off first by getting right down to the nitty gritty. You are not a suit, and, and I'm, I'm saying this from the aspect of having worked with the government for 40 years and uh, being a director of a government agency, uh, but that doesn't really describe who you are and, and what you are. Why don't you give us a little bit of history and background, where you grew up, how you got into to the position that you're in today? Thanks, Kelly. I, I grew up here in Arizona. I was born and raised here, third generation. Uh, my dad started me hunting, uh, killed my first quail when I was eight years old, and uh, I've hunted ever since. Uh, my life's been in the outdoors. That's what attracted me to wildlife conservation, and uh, I've enjoyed, enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, I started with the Arizona Game and Fish Department over 42 years ago and uh, spent my first 10 years with the department as a, as a field wildlife manager, combination of a biologist and warden, but a field guy with boots in the dirt. And uh, all, the, all the best lessons that I've learned came from those first 10 years and then worked up through the ranks after that. And I've been director for about nine years now, and, and I enjoy being a director, but I sure enjoy being a wildlife manager. Well, that's awesome. And I want to I tell our listeners why I, I am making the point that you're not a suit, because a lot of people might just assume because you're the director that you were a, a, a political guy or a government guy who got a government job and, and you worked your way into this. But in addition to being the director of the Arizona Game and Fish, uh, you've been on the council to advance hunting and shooting sports, uh, state wildlife agencies, uh, um, wildlife and Hunter Heritage Conservation Council, co-chair of the uh, Agency Industry Coalition, U.S. Sportsman's Alliance Youth Program Advisory Council, Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. So much, much more, and we don't have time to, to cover it all, but everything that you do really relates to conservation. Absolutely. Conservation and shooting sports have been my life. And having worked in conservation, I'm acutely aware of just how critical shooting sports 
and hunters and anglers are to the future of conservation. And, and if we're going to have conservation for the future, have the wildlife that we've enjoyed, wild spaces and the things we've gotten to do through our lifetimes, if our children are going to have that, we've got to make sure that system stays sound and, and provides all the conservation benefits well into the future. And a lot of people don't really realize the role of the hunter and the angler in doing that. Uh, that's kind of the message I tried to take on the national scene because it was being forgotten. Uh, and hopefully we're starting to wake up and remember where our roots came from. Well, we're very proud to be here from Arizona where we have somebody who represents us and represents the shooting sports and conservation the way that you do. Uh, makes me proud to work with the Arizona Game and Fish every chance I get. One of the things that, that we're all aware of in in this industry specifically and in this age of social media and the antagonistic views of those who don't agree with you, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking kind of metaphorically there, but uh, we all the time are challenged on social media about what we believe in and, and how we do, and the mindset of the liberals is that, that we're killers and that we have nothing to do, we're, we're the antithesis of a conservationist, where they think that if you just left them alone, they would survive and be better off. And and I think you can probably tell us uh, in a better way than I can on why that's so far from the truth. It's important to understand that that human beings certainly impact their planet. You know, when I when I was uh, a, a youngster growing up in Arizona and hunting, you know, we had maybe a million people in Arizona, probably a little less. Now we've got over six million, maybe six and a half million people. And that footprint has an effect. The utilization of, of our natural resources has an effect. What we can do, though, is we can uh, implement active management measures that has a counterbalancing effect. We can provide food plots if food plots are necessary. We can do stream improvements if you need to improve uh, aquatic habitats for, for fish. There are, there are things that we can do, but it takes people, it takes money, it takes a lot of resources and energy, and the, the foundations that enable that to happen really do come from the hunter-angler community. That's where our, the bulk of our volunteer force comes from. It's where our funding comes from. A lot of people don't understand that hunters and anglers, when they buy their hunting license and when they buy a firearm or a fishing rod, there's an excise tax from that fishing rod that goes into a fund that helps pay for conservation by state fish and wildlife agencies. Collectively, state fish and wildlife agencies put about $5.6 billion of conservation on the ground annually. That's, that's three times what our U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service can put on the ground annually. Without that, you wouldn't have the abundance of wildlife that everybody gets to enjoy, whether you hunt or not. You get to enjoy the wildlife that those conservation actions uh, enable to, to exist. Well, one of the things that I choose to use as a defense when people start to attack me for my, my hunting is that, um, you know, I've literally uh, made contributions in the thousands towards wildlife habitat and, and the uh, protection of, of animals and, and their habitats. And I've done that through... The purchases that I've made that have uh, excise tax that go to uh, the wildlife organizations and through um, my 
um, game uh, tags that I purchased uh, that, that through the Arizona Game and Fish uh, or wherever in the world I've hunted, uh, all of that goes to helping to create an environment where the animals can t- continue to thrive and survive. So, and I asked most of them, well, how much have you contributed? Well, you know, I'm fighting this fight, but they've not contributed a thing because they don't buy any of the products that actually are go to provide those funds and they don't participate. So they don't, you know, they don't provide those funds either. So um, it's difficult for them to really have a, a, an argument against that. Um, can you help us with how the Arizona Game and Fish gets involved in certain um, projects that that need to get done and and how you help support the locals and the people who actually uh, are the ones that are contributing the the time and energy to to get these projects done? Absolutely. Uh, We're responsible for for managing over 800 species of wildlife here in Arizona. And wildlife needs habitat. It needs good quality habitat. needs connectivity between habitats in order to survive and and to, to exist. And so we work uh, with the, the, not only the, the license dollars we receive, but also with both federal governmental organizations, but especially non-governmental organizations, the private sector, uh, cooperatively to be able to restore habitats across Arizona. Um, and we, I'll give you an example. This, so far this uh, past fiscal year, we've restored almost a half million acres of wildlife habitat. This year alone, uh, 1.3 million acres uh, since July of 2015. We can't do that alone. We do that because we have so many volunteers and we have partners in the both the federal governmental sector, but also non-governmental sector uh, that, that put habitat on the ground. Uh, a lot of those projects come through our habitat partnership committees, which are advisory groups that help us figure out how we're going to spend uh, dollars from our special tag funds. Our commission allows three tags for each species uh, to be awarded to a nonprofit organization. They then raffle or auction those tags off to raise money. And they raise money in the millions of dollars that we're able to put on the ground annually in conservation. And and those are the what are referred to as the governor's tags. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, you know, just an example of, of a few projects, you know, we've done the southeastern grassland, uh, southeastern Arizona grassland project, which improved uh, pronghorn populations all across southeastern Arizona multifold over what they had been. They also restored the grasslands, though, for species that will never be hunted, you know, the grassland species that depend upon the grasslands. A lot of them are avian species, birds. Uh that benefit too from what the work that we did for pronghorn uh, has has accomplished. We've done a project in the uh, restoring bighorn sheep in the, into the Santa Catalina Mountains. Who knows if that sheep population will ever be hunted, but everybody that wants to see a wild sheep can do that right on the outskirts of Tucson now, and that population is starting to thrive. We've done projects for everything from California condors and bald eagles to black-footed ferrets and Apache trout and restored, as I said, millions of acres uh, across Arizona. Uh, I want to ask you, you said that you're responsible for 800 species. 
How many of those species or roughly how many of those species are actually game animals? You know, I don't have that figure right off the top of my head, but you're really talking just a, a minor handful. You're, you know, you're talking, well, there's a variety of fish species, but you're, you're, you're talking less than 100 species, probably less than 50. And that would have been my guess, around 50. And, yeah. and which really brings us to the point was this really isn't just so we can hunt. We really believe in conservation of all wildlife so that everybody can enjoy it. Now, hunting, we believe, is a, is a part of that enjoyment for those people who like to hunt. But as you said, maybe 50 of the species that, that you're charged with protecting and, and making sure have a future um, will ever be hunted. or you know, They're all just there so that, that we as humans can enjoy them in their natural habitat. Absolutely. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, sportsmen came together. They saw the crisis. Wildlife was being uh, harvested unsustainably uh, in, in a pioneering west. Uh, and hunters and anglers came together uh, with, with conservation community. And, and they tried to figure out, now, how can we restore these wildlife populations? How can we stop the decline? And what grew out of that is a system of conservation we call the North American Model of Conservation. You know, key figures like uh, you know, Gifford Pinchot, who founded the Forest Service, George Bird Grinnell, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, Aldo Leopold, who's the father of, of modern wildlife management. All of those folks had an input into it, the system that grew out of it based on the public trust doctrine that wildlife belongs to the people. And that system, uh, which includes uh, accommodating our system of conservation funding through sportsmen and outdoorsmen, uh, men and women, has led to the finest conservation system in the world. There's no question when you look at the abundance of wildlife diversity that we have in America today, you don't find that kind of abundance if you go to Europe or any other place in the, in the world. Uh, and they're struggling in, in uh, the developing countries because they don't have that same construct. We have a system that really uh, has a lot to offer the world and be emulated, and we need to make sure we protect it. Um, I'd like to talk about um, one, just selfishly, one species in general, and, and you may not have the figures right in front of you. I know as uh, being charged with running the entire Arizona Game and Fish, you probably don't know every uh, the number of every uh, species out there. But for a bunch of us who have lived here for a long time, um, pronghorn hunting is becoming a real struggle for us because we just can't get drawn. Now, I I understand that the populations are growing, but I remember it wasn't back in the 80s where our elk population had dwindled to the point where it was almost impossible to get drawn. They were really struggling, and we didn't know whether they were going to survive. Obviously, some of the things that you've done uh, as a director and, and the things that the Arizona Game and Fish have done, we've got a really thriving and growing elk population, um, very conducive to hunting. Uh, is the pronghorn population just smaller? I mean, just slower growing? That They don't produce as much offspring and they just don't grow like an elk does? It, one of the factors with pronghorn that uh, is, is a really uh, significant factor, they're, they're grassland obligate species. Grasslands in general have been um, uh, an, a, a habitat type that's 
really suffered with development pressures. Also, we're beginning to learn more about pronghorn and the importance of genetic connectivity across their range. Uh, if I go back to when I was a kid, uh, the biggest hit that pronghorn populations took occurred in a massive snowstorm in the winter of 1970, excuse me, 1966 and 67. Uh, we probably lost two-thirds of our pronghorn in that snowstorm. That, uh, the ability of those pronghorn to rebound is challenged also because of our arid environment. If you go to the heart of pronghorn country like Wyoming, uh, it's, it's common for them to have uh, twins and even triplets. In Arizona, they almost never raise more than one uh, fawn. Uh, so they always deliver at least uh, uh, two fawns, but usually at least one of those fawns falls to predation or some other uh, cause of, of mortality before it can get raised up. So our herds in, in this fringe of their habitat in this arid environment are not as reproductively capable uh, first. Second, we had a, a major decline in the population as a result of one massive event in 66-67 and then follow on that with the development pressures um, it's really created a challenge for our pronghorn herds when when I if, if you go back to when I first started hunting there was contiguous habitat from the mesas just north of Phoenix all the way to the Grand Canyon uh, I-40 didn't exist 66 was a two-lane highway US 66 Route 66. Uh, I-17 didn't exist. That was called the Black Canyon Highway, but it, my folks broke their oil pan on the Black Canyon Highway. And so that all of those things that have come in since that time have fractured that habitat. Grace challenges for us. Does it mean that we have to be happy with what we've got? No. We can do things that, that we... Uh, have never had to do before, like moving pronghorn to ensure genetic uh, interplay. Uh, we can do things like uh, ensuring that where those populations have dropped to the point that predation pressures are keeping them from expanding, uh, we can manage that predation so that there's less mortality. Uh, but it takes a, a lot of energy, and we're getting better at it, but we've got a ways to go for pronghorn to be what they could be and what they once were. So I want to get this straight. Uh, you're talking about uh, the herds and um, herds being segregated by human encroachment and their territory, and then that affects their ability to reproduce and to maintain a strong herd? Correct. Okay. One of, one of the problems when you... Uh, fractionalize the genetic base and the, the, the herds begin, they become inbred because they're not uh, interacting and interbreeding across a broad landscape. They're in a real isolated area because of highways and canals mm -hmm. and things that we built. And one of the effects of that is a reduced reproductive capability. And when you start to see a decline in their reproductive potential, that's usually one of the clues that there may be a problem with that genetic diversity. I remember uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, I would travel up to Chino Valley quite often. 
And uh, man, just from the time you get off a of 69 onto 89, man, just out of the Granite Dells area, you'd start seeing antelope all the way out through and pretty much the rural Chino Valley and all the way past that clear to Ash Fork. Um, now, Chino Valley is a large enough area. I'm sure that they don't get a lot of uh, transitioning from you know south to north in that area now like they used to. So I know that area right there probably has been affected by what we're talking about as much as anything. I mean, they've been surrounded by humans and just can't get the number of choices for the guys. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and Chino Valley is a classic example of a, a grassland area that's been affected by development. You know, we were talking a little bit about my background in history. My first uh, deer hunt where I actually had a tag, not a tag-along hunt, uh, we camped on Woodshoot Mountain, which is in the Mingus Range. And we, uh, we could sit in the camp and look across what is now Prescott Valley to the Bradshaw Mountains we could see the fire lights of deer hunting camps in the Bradshaws and only one light in all of what's Prescott Valley now. Well, now there's, you know, thousands of people living in that valley and that has its effect. Well, you know, most of uh, my friends and, and some of the people on social media know I just uh, built a a second home up in Talking Rock, which is 16 miles north of Prescott on Williamson Valley. And, you know, that isn't necessarily prime um, pronghorn land, but we we often get deer on our property. We we see the, um, the droppings all the time. We've got a lot of uh, javelina in that area. I know we've seen bobcats. And so, so it's when you see them in a, a housing development like Talking Rock Ranch, you know we're encroach, encroaching on their their uh, habitat. So we try to do it as unobtrusively as we can, but there's just some things that you just can't control. One of the things that you talked about was predation, and uh, I have my own personal thoughts about something that happened a, a few years back, and you may be able to shed some light on it that uh, in a, a point of view that I haven't heard. So, And we haven't talked about this, so I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, I think the fact that they um, outlawed mountain lion tra uh, trapping has made a big difference in some populations. Um, do you see it that way? Or do you think that, that our mule deer, for example, um, do you think that the, the decline in the mule deer population has anything to do with mountain lions? Or do you think it's just something that we're going through? Well, when you're, when you're talking about, usually, when you're talking about uh, a big game population like mule deer, there's going to be multiple factors that uh, contribute to a decline. So we've gone through long periods of, of drought that have had an effect. Uh, the effect of, of, of those drought periods can be exacerbated by the predator load and the numbers of predators. Uh, so in, in most cases, there's... There's a proximal cause, which may be drought, but there's ancillary causes like predation that can be a factor. Now, oftentimes, if, if we can influence any one of those factors, we can begin to shift the population growth in a positive direction. So predation management is definitely an important factor. Uh, when we have tools taken away, uh, for whatever reason, uh, 
legally, it limits our capacity and our ability to, to manage wildlife in a state that's so impacted by human populations that it needs to have management and management capability. And that's why I always advocate for keeping all of our tools on the table and never, never legally eliminating our ability to use a tool if we may need it in a given situation at any given time. And certainly, uh, uh, the management of mountain lions has been confounded uh, to some degree uh, by some restrictions. Uh, it's much been much more of a factor impact in California, where they banned the ability to hunt lions. Uh, I, I think that was a, a bad mistake from a conservation perspective. And also for a mountain lion behavior perspective. You've, you may be able to challenge my thinking on this, but I've heard that, that our mountain lion population is about at its maximum. Mountain lions are territorial. They'll kill each other. If, they, if there's too many of them, they kind of dictate how many in an, a given area will actually survive. Is that the case? There's really... All, I don't. I can't say absolutes, but I know of no viable mountain lion habitat that's not already occupied uh, by mountain lions in their home range. And if if a lion is removed or dies or or disappears for some reason or another, it very quickly gets replaced by another mountain lion because all those habit all those home ranges that are available are are occupied. Mountain, people don't understand mountain lions are, are very reproductively capable. Uh, so we talked about pronghorn might raise one uh, uh, fawn when they, they deliver two. I've seen female mountain lions running with four kittens, almost full grown. Uh, within a few months of going out on their own, uh, that kind of reproductive capability, really what limits that population is when they go out on their own, if they cannot find an empty home range, they're probably going to find themselves in a fight with another lion who, who may or may not kill them uh, in the process and, and, and control that home range. So right now, we're pretty much at maximum. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't understand that, that, that for some reason people think that mountain lion populations are at risk. We've got abundant lions in Arizona. Mountain lions are expanding their range across the nation. Uh, the international body that evaluates the species at risk, uh, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, puts mountain lions at the lowest level of risk. Well, one of the things that, that makes me believe that what you're saying is absolutely true is that you can still buy a tag for a mountain lion. There is no draw. And I know that it's a hard enough hunt that you're nowhere near what you would think was acceptable in terms of the number of lions taken every year, um, which is why you give the tag, basically give the tags away. Right. That's correct. They're so reproductively capable, and because all of our home ranges are occupied, there's no, no reason to restrict uh, hunting opportunity further. And they are very difficult to hunt. The only real effective way to hunt them is using dogs, and even then, uh, most people come back empty-handed, and it's, uh, it's a true West adventure when you try to ride across those mountains horseback following a pack of hounds. Yeah, I can imagine. It's, it, you know, I have a place in my new home that I would love to have uh, a mountain lion mount, but I'm not sure I'm willing to, 
to go on the hunt to get one because as far as I know, that it can be as tough a hunt as there is. So I, I have to make a, a long and hard choice to see whether or not I actually do a mountain lion hunt. Well, Larry, we've, we've really buzzed through the time and it happens every time we get a guest that's really uh, interesting and, and has a lot to say. Uh, I really want to thank you for being here on the show. Um, We've got just about a minute left. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if um, your time will allow, but I think we have so much more that we could cover and so much more that, that our listeners really want to learn about that we could have you back with no problem. I'd love to come back. I, I've enjoyed this, uh, this time we've had. I think there is a lot more to discuss. I really want to thank you for being a part of conservation, being in the industry you're in. Well, we really appreciate it, and I, I feel strongly about it. I'm a, a life member of almost every organization in town, and I and I affiliate myself with those that who, who do the kind of work that I really think is important. Um, do you, you've got, you've got an, um, a couple of different um, events coming up. If you want to talk about them real quick, we got about a minute. Well, let's talk about the expo because it's this okay. weekend. Okay. It's free of charge. Come on out. It's the biggest outdoor event uh, that the state has. We'll probably have about 40,000 people uh, through the course of the whole weekend. And you can get your, your, your hands on just about every activity from kayaking uh, to fishing to uh, uh, shooting a, a firearm on the range and, and testing out a variety of different firearms if you're sh- uh, shopping for one right now. Um, we've got it all happening right now. Well, that sounds real exciting, and I hope to to see a bunch of our listeners out there. I plan on being out there for some part of the show. Uh, once again, Larry, thanks. Really appreciate you being on the show. Really uh, thank you for being here. I want to invite my listeners to stay tuned through this short break, and we'll be right back. For exciting video content live and on demand, visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gunstock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports.
are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I really appreciate uh, all of my listeners being here today. Uh, what a great show with uh, Larry Voiles, the director of the uh, Arizona Game and Fish. Such a, a real down-to-earth um, wildlife guy who grew up here. Thank you, Kelly. I never really understood the intricate dance that somebody in Larry's position has to do. Uh, there's diplomacy, there's special interest groups, there's biology, there's uh, you know commercial and permits, and then there's the federal government. My God, just juggling all those to make sure that we can maintain uh, um, you know game uh, in their habitat without getting too large um, and, and allowing everybody to partake in that is quite a dance. So that was really eye-opening for me. Well, and don't forget the fact that he's got to run an organization that has about 600 employees. Right? I mean, I've got 65, <laughs> and I know how hard that is. But, I, I mean, in addition to all that he does for the sake of wildlife and and all of the organizations that he has to interact with, he has to be a boss, and he has to run the division, I mean, the Arizona Game of Fish. So, um, incredible guy, really, really nice to have him on. Um, our next guest is as truly as incredible a guy um, – one of the nicest men I've ever met and one of the most dedicated men to on the boots, I mean on the ground um, conservation effort as anyone I've ever known. His name is Jim Lawrence and he I met him through the North Valley chapter of the Mule Deer Society or, uh, Foundation and um, really glad to have Jim on the show today. Hey Jim, how you doing? I'm doing great, Kelly. Thank you. Well, let's talk about you a little bit. Um, give us a little bit of background on um, who you are, where you grew up, how you got involved in, in conservation and, and wildlife and hunting, and uh, just give our listeners a, a chance to get to know you a little bit. Sure. Um, I grew up uh, on the East Coast uh, in Virginia, and my I used to hunt with my uh, grandfather. Uh, we used to deer and squirrel and turkeys and um, as uh, after high school I, I came west and uh, uh, ended up in Arizona and um, have been here ever since and I love the west I've uh, I love to hunt I love conservation and uh, and uh, you know that's kind of what brought me uh, to the mule deer foundation well, let's just take a minute before we get too deep into this. Talk about what you do. Not everybody that uh, I have as guests on um, who are very um, busy in uh, participating in either the shooting sports or the firearms industry, uh, and in your case in hunting, um, actually works in the firearms industry. So let's let's tell them what you do. Well, I, I, currently I'm uh, on the board of directors with the with the Mule Deer Foundation. Uh, I started out, um, I had met the regional director, uh, Terry Hearn, and I'd volunteered for a uh, conservation project up in central Arizona and had met uh, the regional director, Terry Herndon, and we uh, kind of hit it off and, and uh, very like-minded, and uh, I had started, uh, consequently, I'd started a, a, a chapter here uh, in the valley, it's called the North Valley Chapter, and uh, I was chairman um, for the North Valley Chapter uh, for three years, 
And then I moved on. They had asked me to become the state chairman, which I had done. And we had grown from that time. We had grown from one chapter here in Arizona to 15 chapters. So um, there's been a tremendous amount of growth uh, with the Mule Deer Foundation in Arizona the last five years. And um, recently I was uh, asked to be on the board of directors uh, with the Mule Deer Foundation, which I accepted. And uh, and uh, I still am involved locally with uh, the chapters here and, and, and conservation work. You know, like you had mentioned, uh, the on-the-ground, uh, boots-on-the-ground projects, that's kind of my passion is, is wildlife conservation. Well, and Arizona is really lucky to have somebody like you because I know not only are you out almost every weekend personally, you're very good at organizing the projects, which really is probably more paramount to the success of the project than actually one person's ability to affect how it goes. So the fact that that you're willing to take the time uh, do the work and uh, do the organizational part of it is really what I admire the most about you because it's it's pretty easy to volunteer, show up, you know, swing a, a pick or a shovel and and you know kind of dodge the choyas for uh, eight hours and then then come home, maybe have a meal and come home. Um, but one of the things I really like about the Mule Deer Foundation and and before we get into that, let's just talk more about the Mule Deer Foundation because everybody doesn't necessarily understand what these organizations have been organized to do. Um, so can you give us an idea what the re- real focus of the Mule Deer Foundation is and how it works in order to, you know, improve habitat and, and you know, conservation? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the Mule Deer Foundation was started in, in, in 1988, and uh, since that time has grown to one of the premier wildlife conservation groups in the nation. Um, we're all very proud of the, the fact that about, I think last year, 92% of the, the money that was brought into the Mule Deer Foundation went back to projects on the ground. And that's, that's almost unheard of in this industry. Um, we have grown to over 150 chapters um, as of the end of 2016. And our main focus, we're the only wildlife group, uh, we're a 501c3, we're the only wildlife group that's dedicated strictly to mule deer conservation, mule deer and blacktail deer conservation. Um, Of course, you know, most of our projects uh, benefit all wildlife, but our, our main focus is mule deer. You know, mule deer is the only big game species in North America that's still in decline. You know, elk at all-time high, their numbers are all-time highs, turkey, white-tailed deer, but mule deer uh, are still struggling. Yeah, we went over that with uh, Larry in the earlier part of the show, and uh, you know, there's a number of reasons why people think that that's the case, but the fact is, is that whatever the reason for it is, we need to figure it out, and that's why I'm so proud of the Arizona Game and Fish and organizations like the Mule Deer Foundation, where they really care, and they're really working to find a solution and working to to strengthen the 
not only the habitat, but the mule deer population itself. Right. Yeah, you know, the... You can't say enough about Director Voles and, and the job that he does and, and uh, the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Uh, the Mule Deer Foundation works extremely close with, with the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Uh, in fact, I, two days this week I was in meetings uh, at the department, and we had uh, one of the meetings was uh, uh, in regards to the health of the Kaibab and the deer herd uh, up on the, in northern Arizona on the Kaibab. And, um, you know, the health of the herd, the health of the habitat, it's the mild winters that we've had here recently. The, um, the herds that uh, they were, the biologist was telling us that the, the herd is at a 35-year uh, high. Um, since 2010, they had a survey where, in, I believe it was 12A West, they had counted 6,800 uh, mule deer. And in 2000, in uh, August of 2016 of last year, they had 11,900. That's a 72% increase in population in that one unit alone. So, um, you know, you have to take your hat off to, you know, the Arizona Game and Fish Department for proper wildlife management. You know, we've had um, uh, pretty mild winters, which, you know, you don't get a lot of kill there and the, the, they were also mentioning the the doe to fawn the fawn to doe ratios are, are way up eighty nine percent and in one unit it's over one hundred and forty percent so well, we're seeing a lot of good a lot of good things happening right now with um, mule deer conservation in Arizona. Well, you mentioned twelve A West and anybody who's a hunter here that's hunted mule deer knows that that's one of the most desirable units to get drawn in. I was fortunate enough back in the early eighties in my really my infancy of hunting to get drawn for that uh, unit uh, two out of about five years and uh, if there were wow. sixty four hundred deer in there at that time, you couldn't have proven it by me because I didn't see one and I didn't shoot one but that's <laughs> that's because I really didn't know what I was doing so right. Uh, right. You know, it's that's one of the unit. things. That, that unit's known, all, you know, anybody that's a mule deer hunter knows of 12A West, and um, everybody in the country wants to hunt that unit, so. Well, let's talk about hunting for a little bit in Arizona, especially, and, and I, I wish we had brought this up with uh, Director Voiles. Um, people just don't understand how great uh, an environment Arizona is for game hunting. Um, we have a large population of a number of big game that people just don't realize that we have. Uh, now, we don't have the typical Midwest uh, whitetail that so many people are used to hunting, but we do have the, the coos deer, which is a whitetail, but a, a totally different species, which is pretty much, you know, relegated to Arizona, New Mexico, and, and Mexico. So we have something that's kind of unique to us in that respect. Uh, we've got the pronghorn, as we talked about earlier, and we've got elk and, and mule deer. Uh, we've got turkey, and, and we've got uh, a number of, uh, you know, birds that, that are are really as good as you can get anywhere in the country. So people don't know that Arizona really is a great place to hunt. It is. It's a, a great place to hunt, uh, uh, especially, you know, we have some of the biggest elk, um, mule deer, antelope in the country right here in Arizona. A lot of people don't realize that. You know, you, you, you talk with people from other parts of the country, and they think we're desert and choya and roadrunners, you know. 
they don't realize the diversity of wildlife that we do have here. And it's so well managed. You know, I also think they don't they don't realize the diversity of the topography, which is what gives us the the broad range of animals that we have. Uh, you can be in Phoenix, Arizona, and, and you'll be in the middle of the desert, and within an hour and a half, you can be there up on the White Mountain on the Mugion Rim, or up in Flagstaff, where it's uh, seven thousand feet and pine trees and and cold. So, um, that's right. If if people are thinking Arizona is just nothing but a desert, it's only because they haven't been here. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, our needs are, are different here than a lot of p- other parts of the country uh, also as far as conservation goes. You know, and our, the Mule Deer Foundation here in Arizona, you know, our main focus is water. You know, water's king in this country. You know, it's um, if the mule deer have to travel too far um, between waters, you know, if they're traveling three, four, five miles from, from where they're feeding to, to where their water is, you know, they become stressed. Um, a lot of time the does won't ovulate if they're too stressed. Um, so it's, it's important predation is, is much higher where there's less water. Uh, you were t- I heard you, uh, you were discussing mountain lions earlier with Director Voles. You know, these mountain lions are smart. You know, they know. They'll hang out at these water holes. And if, uh, you know, your waters are few and far between, um, they know sooner or later the mule deer or javelina or or antelope, they're going to come in to, they're going to come in for water. They have to, so they're much more um, susceptible to predation when there's less water. I'm really glad you brought that up uh, about the challenges that we have here in Arizona, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I really believe that the fact that our organizations that are are basically in place to to help with the, the habitat and with the herds probably have the biggest challenge of anywhere in the country because, as you said, water is an issue that a lot of places in the east and the Midwest, they don't have. I mean, their biggest challenge is to keep the population low enough that they don't eat all of the, the farmland up. And That's so, right. <laughs> you know, that would be a, a challenge for them, whereas for us, we really have to manage the herds to make sure that they actually continue to exist rather than don't become a nuisance. That's right. That's right. And, you know, we're uh, the Mule Deer Foundation. We, we're, we do a lot with the Arizona Game and Fish Department as far as, you know, the Adopt-A-Ranch program that the department has. Um, we've, um, we have right now, we have seven different ranches around the state that, that we uh, partner with these ranchers to, to perform, you know, conservation projects. For A lot of times these ranchers will rotate their cattle. They have to rotate their cattle. Out of out of these pastures, and they'll shut the water off if they're caught if their um, uh, cattle aren't in these pastures. So you know some of these pastures are. Well, I know it's it's a struggle with water, no matter how it it comes out. But one of the things that that's been the most exciting for me is to find out how. The Game and Fish actually works with the organizations. And, um, you know, it was something that I wanted to get with D- Director Voiles, but we didn't have a chance. But I know that the Mule Deer Foundation actually gets money from the Arizona Game and Fish to help fund some of these projects that they work in. Now, yeah, they do raise their own money and they're, they're 
very good at at um, having auctions and dinners and stuff that raise money for the mule deer, and they contribute to the Arizona Game and Fish in in uh, ways, but they're actually receive funds from the Arizona Game and Fish that have been raised specifically for habitat and conservation. And that's that's one of the cool things that, that I like about the Mule Deer Foundation. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've been involved with some other organizations uh, that they'll have their annual um, benefit and they'll, you know, auction off a, a bunch of rifles or or hunting gear and stuff and they'll raise money and they don't do anything with it and those organizations are frustrating to me because i know that their charter is is specifically set up so that they're to raise money to spend on habitat and wildlife conservation but they really don't they just they they send their portion that they need to to the um, main office, and then they keep a bank account. And I've never been able to understand what they thought that bank account was for if it wasn't to do the things that they're supposed to be doing. The one thing that I can say in the organizations that I've been involved with, the um, Arizona Desert Bighorn Sheep Society, uh, they work really hard to do the things that they're supposed to do. And and I don't think that they're like a subchapter of the the wild sheep, but they work closely with the Wild Sheep Foundation to create a habitat for sheep here. And I think, and one of the things I really would have loved to have talked to Director Voyles about is I think the 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 greatest thing that has been accomplished in Arizona. Uh, in terms of wildlife is the reintroduction of the sheep into the population and, and having a viable uh, sheep population. I know uh, I've I've heard people seeing sheep crossing the road on 260. And if you don't know where that is, that's you know north of Payson in an area where you wouldn't ordinarily expect to see sheep. Yes, there's mountains there, but they're not right. the kind of mountains where you expect to see the sheep. So... Um, but I like the fact that, that the Mule Deer Society works directly with the uh, Arizona Game and Fish. You get funding from them, and, and you use that specifically for what your organization basically is, is challenged to do. Right. Yeah, we, uh, a lot of our uh, funding, you know, as you mentioned, we, we have our fundraisers, local fundraisers, and, you know, we're kind of the opposite of many of these organizations. We're always out of money because we, we do so many projects, and we rely heavily on the, um, the Arizona Game and Fish Department's HPC program, which is the Habitat Partnership Committee. And we receive grants um, uh, from the department for for a lot of our a lot of our projects, and then we have chapter rewards where um, we'll each one of our chapters they keep a portion. Uh, of the funds that they raise every year for for on the ground projects, so um, every nickel that we that we have available to us, we we use it. So, well, and, I'm uh, gonna I'm gonna share one other thing about the Mule Deer Society that I know of, um, which is really cool, and I'm gonna invite all of our listeners that are in the Arizona area and in Utah to get involved in a local chapter of the Mule Deer Foundation. I like the way that the the main office really gets involved in helping you guys do what you try to do. Uh, 
it, and it makes your banquet so much better than than some of the other ones. They actually help you in in providing some really cool gifts at at because of their size and their buying ability, make it so much easier for you guys to to produce a lot of options for the the auctions and the the silent auctions and the 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 draws and stuff. So um, I really always enjoy a, a mule deer foundation banquet when I go to one. Yeah, they the foundation. You know, the Mule Deer Foundation is uh, they're very supportive of all the chapters, and uh, um, you know, you're right. We are very fortunate to have. We have a warehouse that uh, they have so many neat and so many sponsors that uh, you know partners of the Mule Deer Foundation that apply. Uh, that you know, like you said, from our buying from the our buying power that we can you know have these items in our warehouse and available for our fundraisers. Uh, C.J. Buck from Buck Knives is on the board of directors also. And uh, prior to becoming a board member, he, you know, he's been a, a champion of mule deer conservation for years, So uh, he and his family. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of, you know, great uh, conservationists involved with the foundation. Well, I know that then in the next few months, uh, a number of the local chapters are going to have their banquets. Uh, yes. If you have any of those dates off the top of your head, let's share that with our listeners, anyone in this area that wants to get involved. And, and heck, all you have to do is uh, you know go online and, and find the chapter that you, you want to get involved with, uh, buy a ticket to the banquet, and that's one of the, the greatest ways to get involved because you get all excited about everything that's going on at the banquet. You get to meet the people who are involved because in every chapter, the people who are involved uh, in the chapter themselves are always the ones that you'll see that are providing all the services and running around and doing the organization and, and taking care of everything at the banquet that needs to be done. So if you ever want to know, well, who do I need to talk to? Just look at someone who's giving at the banquet, and that's one of the, the uh, chapter members, and I can guarantee you that. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, coming up uh, a week from this Saturday, we have the Phoenix Chapter Banquet, and that's going to be at the uh, Phoenix Elks Lodge at 32nd Street and Greenway. Uh, you can buy tickets online or you can buy tickets at the door. Um, that's always a great, uh, a great banquet. And then on the North Valley Chapter, uh, theirs is on... April 26th, I believe, um, for theirs. And theirs is going to be out at uh, Ben Avery, out at the Arizona Game and Fish Department's uh, the rec center out there. So, um, But like I said, we have 15, 15 banquets around the state. You can go to uh, www.muledeer.org, and um, you can... Just click on Arizona, and it'll bring up all 15 banquets and when, and when they're going to be. There's a banquet in your area. And, you know, I I uh, hope that everybody comes out and, and supports the Mule Deer Foundation. And it's a great a great way to, to volunteer uh, with your family, you know, bring the kids out. I mean, a lot of these projects that we do, uh, we'll have kids out there from 7, 8 years old to uh, people in their 80s. You know, out volunteering, and um, you know, our that's one the the one uh, aspect of the Mule Deer Foundation. We have great, great volunteers, 
And uh, well, that's what, Jim, makes, that, that's what makes conservation happen is our volunteers. Well, you're definitely one of the great volunteers. I've been involved in a lot of organizations, and I don't know anyone who puts as much time, effort, and energy into this because you love it, and I can tell. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. I really want to thank you for being here. Thanks for sharing the the uh, Mule Deer Foundation with us, and uh, hopefully our, our listeners uh, who want to get involved will get in touch with uh, their local chapter and get involved. Um, you know, unfortunately, as with every week, it seems like time flies so fast. I want to thank all of my listeners for spending their very valuable time with us. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here on Voice America Sports Channel for another session of Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Goodbye for now. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.